going to work? Is that working? It's a great men's breakfast yesterday. Yeah, yeah. That was great. I was glad to be present. Um, tight timeline this morning because there's a number of other things coming. I'm running to Hollister and back. But I wanted to give a quick update on Nigeria. Uh, we have a pastor's conference coming up on, on May the 17th. Uh, I wanted you to know that South Valley sent a cargo container in March uh, to the International Christian Hospital in Nigeria filled with medical equipment. The government has actually empowered them and allowed them to begin a nursing school where they're training RNs in, the, in that whole area now, which is pretty remarkable. That's just one level below uh, a medical school, so we're very excited about that and we're trying to provide curriculum and all the things necessary for a project like that as well as continuing to support the hospital there. Another cargo container is leaving from Chico, California in May with another whole shipment of uh, medical equipment and that's because South Valley Community Church supports that. That's why that happens. It's hard to keep everything on the radar so whenever I come I try to and you know every week we sneak stuff in about what you are actually doing worldwide in order to keep you abreast of the fact that um, Jesus said, he said, uh, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other mo- other mo- uttermost parts of the earth. So that's what we're doing and I wanted you to see this. Of course, uh, every year we give out motorcycles. That's one of the things that we do in Nigeria that's pretty exciting. And motorcycles there, they're made in China, they're assembled in uh, Nigeria, and they cost 700 bucks a piece. And they're like 150 cc's. I tried to get a, a franchise here in the United States, but I couldn't pull it off. I thought, my gosh, here they sell for $2,500. So it's a tremendous thing to be able to, actually, they have kind of a, it's not a lottery, but they interview all these pastors because about 1,000 pastors come to the event. And then they give out motorcycles and other things that we supply as a church to them. And at 700 bucks a pop, we always bring it to your attention. I'm going to do it in Hollister. Last year, Sam mentioned it in Hollister one time and I think they raised enough money to buy a dozen motorcycles. It was pretty amazing. I think they they actually beat Kelton out last year, so I'm going to go down there again and ply my trade, see if I can get some motorcycles. That's the fun part of being in Nigeria. It's kind of a challenge to be there uh, in various ways, but boy, when it comes to seeing these pastors and uh, the difference it makes in their ministry, especially village pastors, it changes their whole life. It'd be like somebody giving you a Mercedes-Benz here. All right, so I always love hanging out with these guys. You can see that guy's face. That's a great Nigerian look right there of a man who's got renewed hope and he's excited and it's always fun to do that. Here, I just want to show this last picture. This pastor we gave a motorcycle to, I think, seven years ago. And he's still jamming around on it, doing his pastoral work in a rural area of Nigeria. And he's a, he's a great brother, so... I just admire these men. Of course, as you know, it's dangerous uh, in many areas of Nigeria to even be a Christian, let alone a Christian leader. Uh, In the north, of course, Boko Haram and all the crazy uh, Muslim extremists. In the south, where we work, there's rebels and abduction. And, you know, uh, I have to go tomorrow to get a bunch of new booster shots to go there. And I was talking to the travel nurse. Man, she was scaring me. (laughs) <laughs> you're scaring me on the phone. Used to be you call up 10 minutes, you've done it a million times, but she held me on the phone for about 45 minutes. 
kept saying, uh, this disease recovered for monkeypox. I'm like, what? I've never even heard of monkeypox. What is monkeypox? And they talk about Ebola and, of course, dengue, which I actually got in the Philippines years ago. And they reminded me, uh, it's bad to get it once, but you don't ever want to get it a second time just because it's worse. You got to do your DEET and all that stuff. But this is one of the real thrills when you're able to actually empower other Christians around the world. So you're part of a much bigger church, a much bigger ministry, a much bigger mission. Okay, speaking of one of the great missions, of course, Jesus, his last words after he rose from the dead and was resurrected, died and was resurrected, he said, um, now I want you to go. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and uh, make disciples of all nations, um, teaching them, baptizing them uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all whatsoever I've commanded you. So uh, Jesus finishes his mission and then he tells us, okay, I did my part, now you gotta do your part. (laughs) I've got all authority and I'm gonna empower you to go. But don't forget, I'm gonna go with you. And that's our mission now, is to go uh, to, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so I appreciate and admire the fact that you're actually doing that. Uh, today, I just wanted to talk for a couple of minutes because um, time is limited, as I mentioned. I wanna talk about being ashamed no more. If you have your study guide, page 22, uh, I'm gonna talk about a familiar story, but I wanna give you a fresh look at a familiar story. I want to talk about the woman at the well. This is my favorite picture of the woman at the well, and there's a dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them, most of which I do not like because they always depict this young woman that looks like she's 18, 20, 22, 24. Now, she was probably 44, 46, 48, 50. She was an older woman, not a younger woman, and I'll explain why in a minute, but isn't that a great picture? She's nameless, faceless, anonymous, and yet here we are 2,000 years later talking about her because this is one of the greatest encounters Jesus ever had, and the technique and the impact he had, we've been talking about the fact that there's no one way we approach people. There was no one way that the early church approached people. It was just viral. The whole thing went viral. It just came out of people's hearts and lives. And Jesus impacts this woman. She immediately becomes the first Christian missionary to a group of lost people. That's pretty heavy, huh? And people often don't know this. Most people don't know this. This is the longest recorded dialogue Jesus ever had with anyone. Isn't that interesting? And there are like nine or ten exchanges back and forth between her and Jesus. And it's so interesting and so insightful. I love stories like this because they're kind of like that painting. They're multicolored. They're multifaceted. And they're fascinating to look at and to study. So that's what we're going to try to do. My own story is a lot like the woman at the well. I I was surprised by joy. I did not expect to become a Christian. I didn't think that would happen. I didn't really think God existed. And uh, I met someone who related to me at a personal level, and I went to an event in San Anselmo, San Francisco, San Rafael. I'm driving home at midnight, and I said to God, if you're really there, um, if you really are there, I'm, I'm willing to give my whole life to you. And because I meant it, 
Uh, it's kind of funny. You give your whole life to Jesus, he'll give his whole life back. If you give 10%, you get 10%. If you give 30, you get 30. If you give 70, you get 70 back. Well, I gave 100%, and here I am 45 years later affirming that I actually meant it. And so uh, the response, that I, the experience that I had was pretty transcendent, and the same thing happens to this woman who would be the most unlikely convert in all of Palestine. No question. It's a long passage, but I'm gonna break it down in three simple points, all right? Three reasons, um, that's not the right one, but um, we're missing one there. Uh, I'll just tell you what they are, because you can figure this out easily. Three simple truths from this story. Number one, Jesus meets us where we are. Number two, Jesus challenges us where we are. And number three, Jesus never leaves us where we are. So, uh, first, Jesus meets us where, right where we are. And let's see if I've got the passage here. There it is. Okay, the other one I think is supposed to be on the other side of this, but that's okay. Here's the passage to start with. We're going to make some observations here. It's a long, long passage, but we're going to take it in a couple of chunks and uh, comment on the three points that I just made here. All right? So, Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Um, and it said, and now he had to go through Samaria. That's really an interesting phrase. He had to go through Samaria. Um, so he came to the town in uh, Samaria called Sikar, near the plot of ground Jacob had ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph, excuse me, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? That was pretty shocking right there. Uh, his disciples had gone into the town to buy some burgers and fries, just a quick, quick lunch, you know. So they were off his back for a few minutes. <laughs> they went into town to do that, and we're told the Samaritan woman said to him, are you out of your mind? Seriously. It wouldn't seem that unusual to us, but believe me, in that culture, this was truly bizarre. Everybody was stunned. Everyone was shocked. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then notice the little parenthetical footnote that John adds to the narrative just to heighten our awareness of the gravity of what the heck's going on here. He goes, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, and that's a strong, strong statement. Uh, so, let's look at just a couple of things real quickly. The phrase, had to go through Samaria. I'm going to just go back and show it to you there. It said that he had to go through Samaria. Actually, Jesus did not literally have to go through Samaria, believe me. 99% of Jews did not go through Samaria. They avoided Samaria. They considered Samaritans to be racially inferior, uh, ethnically inferior, religiously inferior, inferior in every way. They considered them to be heretics because they invented their own religion. Uh, they had their own temple. They had an unauthorized priesthood. They, um, they intermarried with Gentile peoples, and so Jews avoided them at all costs. No joke, this was really a serious kind of a thing. Just a real quick picture here so you can see what I'm talking about. Most Jews would actually go out of Judea, that's kind of stacked here, you see this in Palestine? Judea here, 
Galilee there. Jesus had his headquarters in Capernaum and, of course, did ministry in Jerusalem. Here's what Jews would do. Even though it would take them an extra day or two and miles of extra travel, in order to avoid going through Samaria, they would cross, the, they would cross over to the east side of the Jordan River and go up this way. <laughs> when they got up here, they'd cross back over. They wouldn't even want that dust on their feet. You know that phrase, shake the dust off your feet? That, if, a, if a Jew actually had to walk through a Samaritan area, that's what they'd do when they got done. They'd shake their feet. There was that much hatred and animosity between these two groups of people. And yet it says he had to go through Samaria. So what, why did he have to do it? Because it was God's will to do it. That's why. It's just that simple. In John 5, 19, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees his Father doing for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So clearly, he has a divine appointment with a woman at the well in Samaria in the city of Sychar. At noon, at high noon, (laughs) on this particular day, it was a divine appointment. So, he asked this woman, he kicks off the conversation, this is pretty interesting too, he asked the woman for help. He asked the woman to give him something. What did he ask the woman to give him? (laughs) A drink of water. This too is shocking. The Samaritan woman says, now, you were a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, how in the world Do you have the audacity and nerve to actually ask me for a drink of water? And she reacts basically by saying, you're kidding, you're messing with me, you're jerking my chain. What the heck are you doing? This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So she reacted like this for three reasons. Okay, here are my three reasons. Number one, she was a Samaritan. Yeah, and that was a big, big problem. I drew drew your attention to that little parenthetical phrase there, the footnote John added there that said, um, Jews do not associate with Samaritan. The The word associate literally means to use together. That's what it means. Samaritans and Jews would never use anything that the other one had touched. You wouldn't go into a Samaritan's house. You wouldn't use a utensil. You would never use a plate that a Samaritan had used. And here Jesus is asking the woman for a drink, and he doesn't have a cup. So basically he's saying, I'm willing to drink, I'm even willing to drink out of your own cup. And this was absolutely culturally confounding. Everybody's just totally disoriented about what's going on. What the heck's happening? And that phrase that Jews uh, don't associate with Samaritans, one translation simply says, Jews do not use dishes that Samaritans have used, okay? So what Jesus is doing here is pretty mind-boggling because he's Jewish and she's a Samaritan, actually asking for a drink of water. Number two, she was a woman. It's kind of funny, in Nigeria, men can walk down the street holding hands and embraced with each other down the street. Uh, And of course, homosexuality in Nigeria is almost a capital offense, okay? So there's nothing homosexual about it at all. It's an expression of affection. But you would never in a hundred years ever do that with your wife, ever. 
Men and women don't even sit together in church. We have to force them during our marriage conference at the end of our pastor's conference to sit together. And it's like, let's create a real scene here. My wife's pretty pushy about it, and I'm always going, oh, brother, this is going to be chaotic. They won't hold hands. They won't show any kind of affection. And in this particular culture, you would never speak to a woman in public, especially a woman you did not know, especially a Samaritan woman. So this whole thing is really going sideways fast. Actually, the rabbis used to say things like, quote, let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not even with his own wife. Okay? How about this one? He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself. <laughs> I have better ones than that, but I'll stop right there. Verse 27 actually reinforces this. When the disciples returned, you know, with their falafels and hummus, and, you know, they were surprised to see him talking to who? To a woman. And actually, the word uh, surprise means they marveled. They were amazed. They were dumbstruck with wonder. They were astonished. It was so in inappropriate. It's considered so far outside the circle of propriety. So the disciples are thinking the same thing this woman's thinking. What, has he lost his mind? Seriously. The third reason why Jesus shouldn't have this conversation is because she was an outcast. Now, in all honesty, it takes some conjecture to draw this picture out of the text, but most Bible commentaries and commentators will tell you that something is unusual about the social isolation of this woman in the context of that particular village. Uh, for example, women would always come to get water collectively. They never would come by themselves. They would come together to draw water with, um, with their various pots, their clay water jars and things. It was a grueling and arduous task because you had to fill a very large pot and use it for your entire day's supply. Here's a fascinating picture I found. It was taken in the early 1900s in Palestine. There's 10 women, um, all barefoot and all with those big things. And I've seen in Africa where p women are walking by, not even holding it with their arms, huge containers filled with water and other things, and it's like, dang, I couldn't do that. And uh, that's what the woman at the well's doing. Usually they tra traveled in groups, and, um, and yet we find out that she is by herself. Secondly, she came at the sixth hour. They never came at the sixth hour. That's noon. According to our clock, Jewish clock, uh, it would be the sixth hour. The third hour is nine in the morning. Noon is six. Um, uh, ninth hour is three. <laughs> Don't confuse me here. I know you're trying to. <laughs> and uh, so it's interesting. Everyone would come in the morning. They would never come in at noon. So I think I see this lady like, because she's been ostracized and socially something's not right here. She probably peeks out the, the, the front door, doesn't see anybody. So she streaks off in the middle of the day when she knows she's not going to run into anybody. So we actually see, you know, she's coming at the worst time of the day. No one is with her, and she's hoping no one else will be there when she gets there. So, although we are left to speculate a little bit about the details, our best educated guess is that something was wrong. And obviously her marital history, as we'll see in a moment, and her current living situation make this a very viable uh, interpretation, okay? And to add just one other fascinating detail, 
to Jesus uh, reaching out to this. It adds an extra detail to Jesus reaching out to this woman. So in doing so, he challenges moral barriers. She was a moral outsider. He challenges traditional religious barriers. She was a religious outsider. He challenges social barriers. She was a Samaritan. He challenges cultural and gender barriers. She was a woman in a culture where dialogue between men and women in public was forbidden. Each barrier that society and culture have put between Jesus and this woman, you know what he does? He simply ignores it because it's the invention of human behavior, human beings, discrimination, racial prejudice, and gender prejudice, and all those other things. And you know what? When you read a story like this and you realize how startling it actually is, it really, I think the word of Jesus to us would be, go and do thou likewise. It should be part of our openness. We should look for divine appointments with people that have been marginalized by society, that have been cast aside, social uh, outcasts and things like that. So point number one, he's willing to meet people where they are. I think that's pretty clear. Number two, Jesus also challenges us where we are. And this is where it gets interesting, as I think some of you that are familiar with the story realize. this conversation's about to get pretty intense. I don't know if you've ever read the, the book, uh, Crucial Conversations. <laughs> this is a crucial conversation that's about to happen here. It's gonna be pretty intense, pretty difficult. Jesus has been extremely gracious and gentle and caring through this dialogue because he understands the depth of this woman's pain and her hurt, her sense of shame and rejection. And so what he's about to discuss with her is hard and painful, and here it goes. It's showtime. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not use together with Samaritans. Verse 10 is probably the key verse of the entire passage. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, That's the first thing you have to, here comes the gospel in a nutshell. If you understood the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, is that some of the greatest literature you've ever read in your life? The symbolism, nobody but God could think of saying something this profound, in my opinion. I mean, water gives life, but living water gives eternal life. She said, if you know what was really going on here, you'd be asking me for a drink. So she said, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did also? His sons and daughters, flocks and herd, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. He said, indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still not quite picking up on the fact that it's a spiritual reality he's talking about here. All right? He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. Showtime! (laughs) Kind of a change in direction here. But it's really not a change at all. He's really going to kind of talk to her about this deep need that she has. He He goes, go call your husband. And even that indicates that, again, technically in that culture, you know, talking to her wasn't even appropriate without her husband being there, kind of. 
All right, so if we're going to continue this conversation, go, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're now living with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. It's an amazing for this woman to realize that Jesus knows everything about her, but he can already tell that she that he loves and accepts is accepting her and is relating to her as a human being, as a person, not as an object, which she is so accustomed to having been for so many years. So she said, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Yeah, he's way more than that. I can see you're a prophet. Our, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is that false temple that they erected on Mount Gerizim. It's right outside the city. You can see the mountain right as a backdrop from, from uh, Sychar. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And you know what? That's actually true. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And then he said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, they invented this religion of theirs, just like every other religion on the planet today that isn't Christianity. I'm not kidding. Jesus would say the same thing to them. Hey, you worship what you don't even know. You don't know what you're talking about, what you're thinking about. There's no reality to it whatsoever. And then he goes, but we, as Jews, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jew, Jews. And then he goes, but you know what? None of this is really gonna matter in a very, very short period of time. He goes, a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, wow, I know Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to him, I who speak to you am he. That's pretty profound. Remember, demons would try to say, you're the Christ, son of God. Shut up. He'd do a miracle, don't tell anybody. He kept it a secret. It was called the messianic secret. No one knew who he was. But he just tells this one woman straight up, I am. And actually, in the original Greek, he goes, yeah, I am that I am. It's the claim of Exodus 3.14. I'm God manifest in the flesh. Now, obviously, this woman had experienced a truckload of rejection. And I believe that one of the great drives of all humanity is a desire for human connectedness. It just is. We all long to be accepted, received, and loved by other human beings. Sociologists and psychologists agree that the number one obstacle in human connections is shame. Shame. Like Adam and Eve. When we feel shame, what do we do? We run and hide. We cover up. We disconnect. And that's exactly what this woman had been doing. I think at the core of shame... We feel this thing inside of us where we don't feel good enough, acceptable enough, or lovable enough for intimate human connections. So we get shut out from the very most desperate thing that we need. And I think all of us struggle with this feeling of not good enoughness, and I believe that's what this woman is feeling. And you know what's interesting? When you have to live a life like that, and you have to create a false self to project to the world, and people don't really know you, there isn't intimate connection, because there's shame involved in our lives where we just know that we have false failures, and we think if someone knew who we really were, That'd be the end of it. Uh, man, that is exhausting. It's, uh, it makes you weary. It makes you thirsty. It makes you parched and dehydrated. 
emotionally. So, Jesus tells her she's had five husbands. It may sound like he's being a little harsh or overly direct, but he's also the same one that said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So, bang, here it goes. Now, there's two ways of interpreting what transpires here. And uh, the first one I call the dissatisfaction narrative. And for time's sake, let me just see if I can't describe it in 60 seconds. This is the primary narrative of most commentaries. Uh, They consider her to have been an immoral woman. You've heard that? So she's thirsty. She wants satisfaction and meaning in life. And so she moves from one husband to next husband, next husband, next husband, next husband, next guy. Why even bother getting married again? You know, so six guys. That's why I said she probably was in her 40s at least. Even if she got married at 15, let's give each husband five years. And she's 40 right there. Let's give the sixth guy five. She's 45. So she wasn't some young hooker-looking lady out being a cougar with Jesus. And I've read commentaries like that. It's like, what the heck? Where'd you come up with that? That's called the dissatisfaction narrative. Your soul wants to be filled with people and things, and it never will be, okay? I believe that's true. I believe that that's absolutely true. And that's why the whole thirst, living water, see, when when we look to the world or people or things, you know, as soon as we've drank it, we're already beginning to get thirsty for more. That's how it works. So Jesus goes, hey, I can satisfy that sense of dissatisfaction. And without Jesus, I believe it's actually true. We all become just like that. We become spiritually like a cracked, empty pot in, a hot, in the hot sun. If you're here today and Jesus isn't your main source of satisfaction, trust me, you're going to be going from one thing to another thing to another thing and another thing, and you know what I'm talking about, and it's dissatisfaction. There is a second narrative. I have never really seen before. So here it comes for you that all think you know since Sunday school the entire story of the woman at the well. I call it the broken heart narrative. (laughs) I just kind of invented that, but I liked it. The broken heart narrative. In a dramatic and heartbreaking way, it appears that this woman at the well has been used, abused, and discarded by a number of men. Think about it. In that culture, the culture of that time, she was clearly the victim of the inescapable reality that men ruled the world in a bad way. In that culture, women were really in a bad place. Although this woman has been depicted as a loose, immoral woman moving from partner to partner, I have a hard time actually now seeing that from the text personally. All right? Why? Because there's one crucial factor in the story which is often overlooked. And for me, it changes the whole narrative, personally. So I'm just giving it to you to think about it. Who wants to hear what it is? Anybody? Are you sure? You may regret it. Who wants to hear it? All right, so you're forcing me. All right, I'm going to give it to you in one sentence, then I'll explain what I mean. I believe it's very possible that the Samaritan woman at the well is primarily the victim and not the perpetrator of her tragic life circumstances. And here's why. The key to this different perspective lies in understanding the status of women in the ancient world. Without question, there was an appalling imbalance of power when it came to marriage. 
It's unbelievable. Divorce was relatively easy for a man in Judaism, almost for any reason. But the exact opposite was true for women. In Judaism, it was virtually impossible for a woman to divorce a man. I mean, I think there's one historical record from ancient times of that actually happening. And as I thought and read about this, I began to see that far too many Bible commentators are too quick to jump to what I call the immorality dissatisfaction narrative, all right? I think it's clear that her five prior marriages had not been, uh, had certainly not met the deepest needs in her life. But that doesn't mean she initiated those divorces. Is that simple logic? Yeah, duh, you know. Um, She didn't jump from one relationship to another to another to another. No, she was thrown from one relationship to another to another to another. So you can't presume that she initiated these divorces. Now, I'm not saying she's without sin or totally, you know, unguilty, but she was forced to comply with these men. Why do you think she was rejected repeatedly like that? Anybody know what was the number one reason for divorce in Judaism at that time? Barrenness, that's right. In Nigeria, couples will actually come forward and ask you to pray for them to conceive. There are posters of pastors that promise if you go to their church, they will anoint you and they guarantee you'll have a child. Uh, There are seminars that they have where you can come and they guarantee you'll be married within six months. (laughs) I mean, it's like I run around taking pictures of those cool posters (laughs) because I'm like, I'm like, you're kidding. Here's why. In Nigerian culture, African culture, it's the same thing. It's an absolute shame in in, in, Judaism. If you didn't have a child, you were considered cursed. It would be like being a leper. So I think that's why she was ostracized. I think that's why people avoided her. And I think she got bounced from one relationship to the next to the next. So not only has she been rejected at least five times, she's childless in the process, has no family. If she would have had any children, they'd be taking care of her and she wouldn't be suckered out for another guy. But in that culture, as in Nigeria, if you're not married to a man, you're toast. You're left to beg become a prostitute, or enslave, commit yourself to servitude. Those are the options, and that's why I think the sixth guy, she's just like, hey, you know, what the heck, I have to survive. So when Jesus shows up and meets this woman, it's pretty profound to me. So here's my point, I gotta close. Whether you relate to the dissatisfaction narrative, which I think has merit, or you relate to the broken heart narrative, you need to know that Jesus can provide healing for whichever side of the spectrum you might find yourself. That's how I see it. Either way, no matter whether you created your own sorrow by being, making mistakes or someone else created you for it, Jesus is ready to heal your shame no matter how you came to experience. So, in closing, Jesus never leaves us where he finds us. This is the end of the story. Just as his disciples returned and were, they were surprised to find him talking to a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking to her? Then, notice this little phrase, leaving her what? Leaving her water jar. I think that's pretty significant. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. She didn't run to town crying because he shamed her. Isn't that interesting? It was liberating to her that someone knew everything she ever did and clearly loved her. 
This was a turning, a, a major turning point. She leaves her old life behind, runs into town with excitement. And I, again, I think if she was a woman of loose morals, she would not have had this particular audience. But she said, could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know anything about. Then his disciples said to each other, they're brightest. A big light bulb. Uh, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do not say four months more, and then the harvest will come. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe to harvest right now. And that's true for this church. It's true in our world. Uh, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to look and see that there are people like this woman out there. You just reach that one woman, and all of a sudden, she's on fire. The whole village comes out, and they believe in Jesus. They believe that he's the Christ, and Jesus hangs out with them for two more days. How totally cross-cultural uh, is that going to be? Okay, she becomes a missionary. Her life and her mission in life were changed. And this is actually the remarkable story of us. This is us. This is us right here. It's the story of the gospel. It's a perfect demonstration how the gospel works and how we are to take the gospel to other people. Okay, if you're here today and Jesus Christ is not in your life, Oh, well, this is pretty much how it is. No matter what circumstances surround you, I'm just here to urge you, take a drink of the living water. You'll be satisfied. There'll, there'll be healing from shame. There's connectedness with other people. You don't have to hide and cover up any longer. It's one of the greatest emancipations anyone can experience. It's actually taken me years to climb out of the... the tragedies of my past and it hasn't been easy but man I can't imagine what in the world I would be like had I not come to know Jesus and then connected with other people that are passing around cups of living water well I wanted you to hear the testimony of Michelle Owen this morning um, she's a woman that knows what it is to drink the living water and she's going to come now would you give her a warm South Valley Community Church welcome this morning Good morning. Um, my name is Michelle Owen. Um, I'm just here to tell you a little bit about myself. My maiden name is actually Panzika, and if you haven't already guessed, I am from, my family's actually from Sicily, and I grew up in a very traditional Sicilian Catholic family. Uh, my family immigrated here from Sicily to New York, and then from New York to San Diego, and then after the war, my family moved to Willow Glen, which had a very strong Italian community. Um, my identity was strongly built on being Italian and my family traditions. Um, we always went to church, and on Sundays we had um, pasta dinner at my grandparents' house with my whole family. Uh, my grandparents were not educated. In fact, my grandmother left school in this, around the sixth grade to take care of her family and to work. My grandfather left school around the seventh or eighth grade, and he worked in a cannery. Um, then he went off to the war, and then he came back and worked in a cannery again. Um, 
I think you would call my parent, my grandparents, people that lived a very sustainable life. Um, they grew their own food, canned their own vegetables. Um, they made their own bread. They made their own pasta. And um, they continued a lot of the traditions that they had in Sicily here in California. Some of those things that we did were uh, St. Joseph's table. Uh, we did a lot of lighting the candles at church during the week. And at, at Christmas, we did um, midnight mass. And then after midnight mass, we would all go to my grandparents' house and we would have sausage sandwiches and cannolis um, around two in the morning with our whole family. And then for New Year's, we did something that a lot of Italians do. We made sfinges, which are kind of um, Italian donuts. They're amazing. Um, <laughs> my grandparents actually had seven children, all of whom were baptized, confirmed, and attended Catholic schools in the area. They married very good, uh, good Catholic men and women, and if you were lucky, they were also Italian. Uh, by this time in my life, I had around, I think around 11 or 12 um, cousins in just my immediate family, so you can imagine how big our Sunday's dinners were. Um, and most of my friends were also Italian, um, at least my parents told me the good ones were. And um, we all went to Catholic church together, so um, a few things about the way that I grew up. My maiden name is Panzica. So um, one thing my parents always told me was that in our community, everybody knew a panzica. So if you did something wrong, by the time that you got home, you, somebody would know, your mom would know, or the priest would know, and you would get the strap. You probably couldn't do that nowadays. Um, by doing good and working hard, you earned everything that you had. I think that was true for a lot of people who, who immigrated here from a different country. Um, just hard work was really instilled in us. You went to church. You stood up when you needed, you kneeled, you prayed the rosary, and you knew how to do the sign of the cross. Um, there was also a crucifix in every single room in our house. It was a crucifix of Jesus dying on the cross. And most importantly, it was above every single bed. Um, and lastly, um, I'm just not going to talk about the Catholic guilt that I grew up with, so we'll move on. Um, I did what every good Italian Catholic girl did. I completed college. I was actually the first woman in my family to graduate. Um, I met Jake. He was my non-Italian boyfriend, which is a story for another day. We got married. And just a little note about our wedding. Um, my husband is not Italian, and he's also not Catholic. So, but my grandparents, they loved him so much. I think they loved him more than they loved me. Um, they actually gave us their blessing for us to get married in a small garden, and we actually got married outside of a church, and that was a really, really big deal. Um, we had our first daughter, Jenna, um, and we baptized her. We bought a house, we had it blessed, and then we had our second daughter, Brooklyn. Um, I have not baptized her, and I still hold Catholic guilt from that. Um, by this time in my life, I had basically everything that I had earned. And as most of you got, know, God has a plan, and it might not be the one that you have so carefully had carved out. One day, my neighbors had asked if I would let them take my oldest to Awana's. If you don't know what Awana's is, it's a midweek program for kids from preschool through fifth grade. And they teach the word to these kids, and they play games. It's a great program. And as a working mom with a couple of kids, if I could get my kids somewhere in the middle of the week and I can get a date night with my husband, I thought, okay, sure, sign them up. Just take them, no problem. So, and it's funny because when you have kids, they have this way of asking you these questions that you might not be prepared to answer. I remember my daughter Jenna asking me, well, how come God loves me? She used to ask me, um, is he here with us now, mommy, in the bathroom? And then she would always ask me, how do you talk to him? And I told her, I do, you just do this. You pray the rosary, you light a few candles, you say you're sorry, and you're good. 
But see, it was when I could no longer answer her questions that I opened up her Awana handbook and I started to read it myself. And I read it and I studied and things started to kind of move inside of me and it stirred a lot of my own questions. Matthew 7, 7 says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. I had learned that through Jesus' death on the cross, I did not need to earn his grace. He had already given it to me. And for me, this was a huge breakthrough because it came at a time where everything that I had learned, earned, my money, my job, my home, my friends, my house, everything was just crumbling around on top of me. We were getting ready to sell our house and we were getting ready to move here to Gilroy. I had no friends, I had no family, and there's no mall here. Um, <laughs> And I miscarried for the first time. And at this time, God gave me something else that I couldn't earn. See, he softened my heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And things, they started to change for me and my family. First of all, I learned to lean on the cross, not because I had earned it, but because he loves me and he wanted a relationship with me. He walked with me in this life in a world where everything of mine had been earned. This love, it actually came for free. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I also started to talk to God whenever I could. Sometimes it was just on my commute to and from work. Uh, sometimes it was early when my family was sleeping. And sometimes I had to lock myself in a bathroom um, with my kids like banging on it and their hands are underneath and the TV's blaring and the dogs are barking. And I'm like, oh Lord, just give me the patience to get through and give me the grace to get through the rest of this day. I started to look at things that I was provided with as a blessing, even those blessings that he had taken away from me. Um, I started to look at the moon, the stars, and the sky. I have a husband who works a hazardous, high-risk job who faithfully would come home to me, to little faces that I would see in the morning that would wake me up, to the babies that I had seen in my dream, to the house that I now had to clean. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for, for you in Christ Jesus. See, I learned that there will always be trials in my life. Nothing will be easy. But I wanted to be grounded in Christ so that when I went through these tough times, I would have a strong base. And when trials came our way again and we lost our second baby, it was different. Not because God was different, but because I was. God knew my pain. I was not alone. And he was right next to me. I decided I was going to build my house on that rock. One of my favorite Bible verses, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat on that house, but it didn't fall. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the, and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Um, I was baptized here in this church along with my oldest daughter, Jenna, because I wanted my life to be a testimony to him. I wanted the people who knew me, who came into contact with me, say, you know that crazy, foul-mouthed Italian lady over there? Well, see, Jesus loves her. <laughs> and Jesus did something for her. And everyone knows me before Jesus and during my trials, and I wanted to be, I wanted to be an example of that. 
I always tell my girls that I'm like Mary Poppins. I'm perfect in every way. But I think that, unfortunately, we know that's not true. I wanted my husbands and my daughters to know that I fail. I fail daily. But God's grace and love is given new every day. So I'll pick up. I'll ask for forgiveness. I'll ask to be changed. And I'll go again. I started to give to those in need in the hope that people would see Jesus through me. I gave my time to women's ministry here at our church. I tried to bless those in need with an Italian home-cooked meal. And instead of taking my daughters to Iwana's, I actually teach it now in the hopes that I can just give a little bit back of what somebody had given to me. I think if there's anything that I hope that you take away is that we are all broken people in this broken world, and it is okay because he loves you, and his grace and his love is for free. And he loves me, and he loves my husband, and he loves my daughters, and he has been good for all of my days. My house is built on this rock, and I will cling to him whatever may come. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my testimony. Michelle couldn't have said it any better. Um, we're all broken people. We always say that, but it's true. Um, we were just talking the other day. We, we, we enter a room and we size ourselves up and we immediately think everyone else is better than ourselves. Who hasn't done that? We are all broken. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. And, and it is the grace. Romans 3 says that grace is freely given completely through the redemption of Jesus Christ, nothing else, nothing else. And we spend our lives, we know it here, but we spend our lives working it out. And as we, uh, as we sing, maybe we could stand as the worship team comes. We're going to sing this song that is strategic for us, that it is grace alone. And I pray that, that God would, would really move it in our hearts to really um, to understand the gravity of, of that truth for us today.